Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, the guy with the fifth highest score on your local arcade Tempest machine. All right, Tempest. Nice. (laughs) Making sure you got that one correct. I appreciate the attention to detail because in our 1984 season, this is the episode where we talk about my personal pick from 1984. And it is a bit of an obscure one. Uh, As I was saying at the end of last episode, I think this is maybe my most esoteric pick in the seasons that we've uh, done so far. And it is Tom Eberhardt's sort of sci-fi comedy teen movie Night of the Comet, which I love and uh, discovered almost at random when I first saw this movie and just was blown away by it and wanted to like tell people about it and wondered why it wasn't more well-known. Although it does have a cult following at this point. Um, And I think I discovered it initially because I must've read something about it somewhere or someone had told me about it and I don't remember what it was, but someone who was also trying to spread the word about this movie turned me onto it initially. And I am trying to spread that to uh, you, the awesome movie year listeners, as well as to uh, my friends Jason and Dave, but I'm not sure if I will have succeeded. Um, <laughs> but I like this movie. And actually, it's interesting because as I was saying, this movie, it has a cult following at this point. It's certainly not, I would say at this point, however, a well-known movie. Um, it's not a movie where the filmmaker went on to have a big career or any of the actors really went on to have big careers. It's definitely it kind of remained in obscurity, but it was actually quite a successful movie when it came out in 1984. It was a low budget film. It was made for only $700,000, but it ended up grossing $14.4 million at the box office, which is more than a lot of the really iconic movies that we've discussed uh, thus far this season. And especially especially on such a small budget, that's, that's really good. Yeah, that's great. I do have to take issue with you, Josh. Maybe no one went on to become big stars, but uh, both the female leads, the male lead, and uh, the director went on to really have steady working careers in Hollywood for the next 20, 30 years here. Well, yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, these are people who continue to work, but none of them in the sense of becoming, again, like big stars or whatever. We don't look at this as like, oh, this is the first Tom Eberhardt movie and it's underrated, even if you know his later movies or something like that. But I think that is in a way part of its charm because you can watch this movie and not necessarily have preconceived notions about uh, the work of of these various people going into it. Um, and certainly, I would say going into the movie, for me, the first time, I wasn't really familiar. I, I did know uh, Robert Beltran, who is the uh, the male lead, I guess we would say. I was a bit familiar with him from Star Trek Voyager, which is his certainly his most well-known role. But You mean uh, I, Hector? Hector, as she, exactly. As, she calls him at one point, as Reggie calls him, hey, Hector. Yes, he plays Hector, one of the survivors of the apocalyptic event here at the beginning of this movie where a comet passes by the Earth and turns almost everyone into dust, except for a handful of people, including the two teenage sisters played by Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney. And 
yeah, I was, we'll get into it later, but I just, I love this movie. So, um, and, and while it has sort of fallen into semi obscurity, it was fairly well regarded at the time by critics. Variety, uh, in their, their unbyline staff review, um, in their typically terse style said, uh, Night of the Comet is a successful pastiche of numerous science fiction films executed with an entertaining tongue-in-cheek flair that compensates for its absence in originality. While sci-fi fans are busy sorting out the influences, filmmaker Tom Eberhardt, whose previous feature was the minor sole survivor, creates a visually arresting B-picture in the neon primary colors of the cult hit Liquid Sky. Much of the film is played straight, but what makes the picture work is a lighthearted approach typified by the reaction of one of the heroines during a suspenseful, dangerous last real scene. Suddenly reunited with her sister, she exclaims, what a great outfit. And that's actually a moment that, that I, I noted to myself watching the movie this time. And I think the balance, the balance of humor and danger in this movie works really, really well. And one of the things about that, that variety review that I kind of cut out because it goes through this like litany of influences and it's claims like, oh, this movie isn't that original because it draws from this like list of like 10 different sci-fi movies. And to me, that is in a way pointing out how it is original because it integrates so many different kinds of influences. But certainly this is working in a familiar science fiction mode with the apocalypse and all that. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're homages in a way, right? So, right. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. We see that all the time, especially in the apocalyptic uh, genre, end of the world where the last few survivors. The review mentioned Soul Survivor, which Eberhardt also re released in 1984 and was another movie about the apocalypse, about a scientist who kind of just, you know, one day is like, oh, I'm the last person alive, right? Yeah, and I would love to see that. That's a movie that's even more obscure than this one and is not available really to watch anywhere as far as I could tell. But it, it also has a, a cult following. And even though it's a more serious film, um, it sounds like it has quite a bit in common with Night of the Comments. So I would love to check that one out. And I have not had a chance to do that yet. But hopefully... Uh, maybe it'll get the release treatment that Night of the Comet has gotten and be able to reach an audience eventually. Yeah, give us a break, Hector. <laughs> Vincent Canby in the New York Times was also uh, a fan of this one. He said, Night of the Comet is a good-natured end-of-the-world B-movie written and directed by Tom Eberhardt, a new filmmaker whose sense of humor augments rather than upstages the mechanics of the melodrama. Like any good self-respecting B-movie, Night of the Comet couldn't care less about dinosaurs or humanity at large. The film is instead about the adventures of two saucy California teenagers, Regina and Samantha, who are sisters and who possess remarkable pluck as well as syntax. Why are you so weirded out, one sister is likely to say to the other after something unspeakable has occurred? And... As we've noted in multiple episodes, I always love quoting the reviews from these uh, critics who are like, what is up with teens today? So, yeah, I mean, what uh, <laughs> what New Yorker cartoon are they all in that they haven't heard language like weirded out before? Uh, right, right. But I think even though that that seems very pedestrian to us, I think this movie does capture a sense of, of the way teens interact and the things that teens would um, would do if they were faced with the apocalypse. And that in part comes from Tom Everhart's background working on documentary films and uh, documenting actual teenagers, which he 
kind of drew from as he was writing this movie. Right, and he asked them what they would do if there was an apocalypse, uh, you know, and then they were all thought it would be cool until they learned they couldn't date or something like that. But uh, one thing is, like, you, you mentioned the language, Josh, but this language is all familiar. It's not like when we did Heathers and they created their own kind of new style of dialogue or even clerks. So I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with these reviewers in the 80s, but they are a little snooty. They are. And yeah, I think that's true. This isn't a movie where he's creating a new lexicon. I mean, he's he's drawing from the way that that teens speak from those actual teenagers that he he researched with. So yeah, no, nothing in here strikes me as like a weird invention in terms of the language. Not every critic was into it. Uh, Paul Atanasio in the Washington Post said, with the world reeling toward Armageddon, a doomsday movie needs some kind of edge. That's what's wrong with Night of the Comet, a cheaply made science fiction movie that enters the atmosphere without ever igniting. Director Tom Eberhardt comes out of TV after-school specials, and the action sequences are TV flat. Eberhardt lacked either the know-how or the budget to give Night of the Comet the kind of special effects it needs. It would have been nice, for example, to see the comet. It also would have been nice to see some acting. Maroney and Stewart, a Brooke Shields clone who has never looked lovelier, play off each other with the disconnected, pith brain style of the soap operas they've graduated from. And his whole review is quite condescending. But um, I, I don't agree. I mean, obviously, yes, this is a low budget movie, but I think that Tom Everhart makes the best of that. And I think this movie has some amazing production design. And I think the special effects, which are largely just putting like an orange filter over the camera, like convey exactly the, the post-apocalyptic sense that you need to convey. Yeah, the look is cool for sure. And we're seeing a lot of that in the films that we're um, going over here. Like we mentioned Streets of Fire. We're getting real 80s horrific stuff here. And uh, this one between the outfits and the uh, the the design of the environment, definitely. And even like the radio studio, it's all like, man, we are in the eighties, baby. <laughs> yeah. I love the set design in the radio station. And it's got that like neon wall of little stick figures playing musical instruments. And, uh, the, the bathroom that Samantha goes into at one point with it's, uh, the checkered floor pattern with those bright colors. And it looks like she's at the, the max and saved by the bell or something like that's that. That's kind so of what like, I was thinking. It's like a precursor to the max. That's literally what I had thought. So, yeah, um, I, w I wish my podcast studio looked like that. I, I wish everything too. looked like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm all for that. Hey, Josh, I wanted to mention one thing about that review where he was saying that Everhart didn't have the budget or the know-how. I don't really think if that's how you feel, that's OK, but I don't really think that's an excuse because they had Wayne Crawford and Andrew Lane from Valley Girl as the producers on this thing who were the kind of overseeing. And I know they butted heads, but, um, you know, in the end, Everhart said they were good producers. So um, if if your point is that they weren't able to accomplish something, it's because they just didn't accomplish it, not because they couldn't have accomplished it. Right, I think so. I mean, and they also had some great uh, makeup people who had worked on some uh, some other uh, you know notable horror movies and stuff in the '80s. So I think they had the right resources here, and they made the best of their low budget. And and obviously, I don't agree with that review. I think this movie looks great. I mean, I think there are times that you can tell it's low budget, but I think it looks great. And I definitely don't agree about the acting. I love both of those performances in this movie. I think those uh, actresses are great, and that they have such amazing chemistry. Um, I, they're just hilarious. I love them. So yeah, we'll get in again. I, I just, I just love this movie. Clearly. But, 
dude's gushing over here, Dave. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that uh, Jason and Dave both that you guys had not seen this movie before. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> had you had you even heard of it, other than maybe from me? I feel like I've heard of it, but that doesn't mean anything, you know. Yeah. Like, I feel like I've heard of a lot of things, Josh. Name a you thing, have. I'll tell you if I've heard of it. That string of words, <laughs> Night of the Comet, just seems like it would be something, you know? Right. And that is a very <laughs> right. like familiar sounding sci-fi. And I think before I had seen this movie, I often confused it with the movie Night of the Creeps, which is also mm. like a cult sci-fi horror movie from the 80s, which is very different and that I remember not particularly caring for. But I, I always had kind of confused the two before actually seeing them. Well, you wouldn't have had that problem had they gone with the working title for this film. Teenage Mutant Horror Comet Zombies. That would that be amazing, rules. too. I would love that. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have to have, say, like Lloyd Kaufman Presents, though, or something like that. Right, right. But it has a bit of that vibe at times. Yes, it does. So, yeah, like I said, I caught this movie because a few years ago it was leaving Netflix streaming. And it was, you know, one movie on a giant list of movies that I had wanted to see at some point. And I sat down and I thought, oh, I should watch this before it's not available anymore. And didn't really think about anything other than that. And just was so amazed with it. And I, I wrote a piece for it for a website that I used to write for that no longer exists called uh, Not Coming to a Theater Near You. And they had they were doing a series on apocalypse movies. And it was rare, very, fairly soon after I first saw this. And I jumped on that. I was like, I want to write about this. And I watched the movie again just a few months after the first time I had seen it because I was so excited to write something on it and to share that. So uh, for well, me, that was a great experience. Well, then I got to say this is a disappointment because one of the tropes of awesome movie year is Josh Bell quoting his own pieces. So where's a Josh Bell quote on this thing? <laughs> well, I didn't want to do that because I think when, when we in the past have quoted my reviews, it's because they are contemporary with the movie, you know, much like the other reviews we quote when we were looking at movies from the, the 2000s. But I, I wrote that piece in 2012, I think, or something like that. So I don't have it handy at the moment. But if you're really eager to quote it, you know, maybe we can get to that later. But I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> I'm going to offer you plenty of my opinions on this movie, whether you like it or not. So that, that'll be enough. Um, well, well, Josh, I only have one thing to say to you. You were born with an asshole, Doris. You don't need Chuck. <laughs> one of the great lines from this movie. So we'll come back in a moment and we'll talk about our general thoughts on Night of the Comet. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1984. We're talking about my pick, which is Tom Eberhardt's cult sci-fi teen comedy, Night of the Comet. And... I have a feeling, Jason, that you didn't like this as much as I did. You are correct. In my defense, Josh, does anyone like it as much as you did? You said it has a cult following, but you clearly love this film. I mean, I do love it, and I think other people love it as well. It definitely has a cult following, including among some uh, notable people. Neil Gaiman, for example, the writer, is a big fan of this movie. And I, I see things about it on social media. There was actually recently, you know, we've had a lot during the pandemic and during quarantine of these like reunions of various casts where they get on Zoom and they talk, reminisce about things and maybe they raise money for something. And there was actually recently a Zoom uh, reunion of Kelly Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart, the stars of this movie. So there was enough interest and I didn't even watch it, but there was Just enough the two interest. two of them? They didn't bring in Robert Beltran, Hector? I, 
I think it was just the two of them. But um, again, I didn't I didn't watch it, but I saw I saw people uh, tweeting about it. So it was something that some people were interested in. So and yeah, you know, you don't need to you don't need to back up, Jason. If you didn't like this movie, that's fine. You know, you don't you don't need to be have a defense. Well, I wouldn't, Josh, because I'll just tell you how I feel. Because that's who do. we are, Josh. No, I, uh, I look. The points you made are like the are the high points of the movie. Like it looks really cool. Um, it's totally easy to get into like that super fun '80s thing, which we need more of. Like, because you know, some of the things I kept thinking about, like even though they're different types of movie, but like kind of invasion movies were like war games and red dawn and like i know they remade red dawn like a few years ago but i think they missed the entire fun element of it right like there was this kind of fun apocalypse genre or fun in end of the world coming genre uh in the 80s um i like the the two leads Catherine mary stewart and kelly maroney and the first half i was way into it but then it just all fell apart i didn't feel any sense of danger i have to agree with that and I thought the entire first half, we are seeing everything through Reggie, uh, Reggie's point of view. So when we started seeing things through other people's point of view, it just didn't work for me. Like when Hector goes down to San Diego, like we didn't need to see any of that. Like that didn't really add anything to the movie at all. And then these scientists who come in and like kind of dominate the second half of the movie, like they weren't that menacing or that interesting for me. Well, I think to go to the point about like to start with the end there, I don't think that like they're dangerous. And I think you want to get the sense that like something bad could happen to these characters. But I don't think they're meant to be that menacing because part of the point about them is that they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. And I don't think that really. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like we left the ventilation system open. So now we're all going to die. Whoops, science. Like, I just don't think that really worked for me in this. Yeah. I mean, I find that I find that stuff amusing. And I think there's even some poignancy to those scientists. I mean, Mar Mary Warrenov, who plays uh, the scientist who's sort of sympathetic to uh, Samantha and Regina, and she's been assigned to capture them, uh, to help capture them and to, to kill Samantha because they believe that she's been infected by the sort of comet virus or whatever you want to call it, the thing that has killed most of the population. But if you only get a small dose of it before it kills you, it turns you into this kind of homicidal zombie. And they believe that she's infected, which she appears to not be. But, um, but yeah, but but she has a scene late in the movie where she herself is definitely infected, and she's decided to kind of kill herself before she turns into a zombie. And she's at the radio station talking with with uh, Hector, with Robert Beltran's character, and it's it's even kind of poignant about her regrets uh, about what they've screwed up. So. I, one thing I remembered, and to your point about the scientists dominating the second half of the movie, which they do, and it kind of shifts to the danger of them as opposed to just the characters exploring this empty post-apocalyptic world, I, I had more of a sense that they didn't really show up until later in the movie, but you see them really in, in brief glimpses throughout the movie. So I feel like it's fairly well set up that these people are going to be important, and we're checking in with what's going on with these scientists and the plans that they're making. And so they don't necessarily just come out of nowhere when they start to become important to the plot. So no. I felt like that worked a little better. No. So I guess, you know, like the first time we see them is, um, you know, kind of after uh, Kelly Maroney's character puts out the call over the radio. Right. Right. So we're still getting a point of view to get to them, you know, but then they just start dominating 
um, everything. And then it's like, okay, so we're taking blood of survivors who we think are innocent to make a serum, but we don't know if the serum can work, but we don't know how long the, until all of us are infected. So we'll kind of just give blood to people based on who we think is going to die first. Like it got really kind of convoluted and confusing. And um, none of that was as interesting as when the two sisters were together. And also I didn't, one of the major things I didn't buy is like, it's the apocalypse. These girls have already been through a lot. You know, there are zombies. There are these kind of, what would you call them? Like just bad guys in the mall that they had to fight off and everything. I don't think they would have ever been like, yeah, we'll, we'll go separately. Like at that point you stick with who you got. It's the apocalypse, baby. You're not going alone. Right. Well, I think it is a bit disappointing that they separate them, although that doesn't last that long. And I could see that because, you know, yes, they're being menaced by, by those thugs in the mall who at least one of them, the leader is, it's clearly he's, he's also on his way to becoming a zombie and they've fought off some other zombies and they've been through a lot of trauma. But I think, you know, you have people come in and it's like, they're the authorities and they seem like the good guys and you're inclined to trust them. And it's only later that they realize maybe these people aren't trustworthy. So I, I was willing to buy into that. I mean, I think the the connection between the two sisters is clearly the best thing about this movie. And they have such great chemistry together and they're so funny. And one of the other things that I love about this movie is that they're set up in the beginning with this kind of contrast where you've got Regina, who's sort of the tougher, smarter one. She's a bit of a tomboy. She likes playing video games, you know? And then you've got Samantha, who is a cheerleader and is obsessed with boys and is chewing gum. And I feel like in a lot of movies, those would be, they would be antagonistic. But what's great is that they love each other. You can get the love between the sisters and they they so... Like they get along and and they just enjoy each other's company. And I really like that sibling relationship, but that does also make it a little less believable when they're willing to be separated. Well, yeah. And one thing I didn't like about that is um, they're both uh, physically beautiful women, right? And the idea that Kelly Maroney's character, uh, the cheerleader, couldn't get a boy and like that her sister got all the boys like come on man like i hate when they do stuff like that well i mean i think she's not saying that she's ugly i don't think there's anything in there there and she's talking about at one point she talks about the guy that she was into and he was about to ask her out and you know that's not going to happen but it's because he's dead because of the apocalypse but a lot so, of the, a lot of the time she's saying like oh you're getting hector because you get all the guys and i don't get any of the guys and like even that fight like did you make it with hector last night like i love that that we see that a lot in the 80s did you make it you know yes that's code yes. for sex dave um Thank but you. it was a lot like, why are you so upset about it? It's like, cause you get all the guys and I'm just a hot blonde cheerleader doing well, nothing I think, with my life. You know, I think the idea is not that she's unattractive, but that maybe, uh, that Regina swoops in and is also attractive and maybe has more confidence and is able to kind of land these guys. Whereas Samantha is a bit insecure and she's younger. I feel like that's a common younger, older kind of sibling relationship. And again, I don't think she says like, oh, I'm I'm unattractive, but it's more about Regina having that kind of confidence that she projects, you know, or or the the attitude that she doesn't care. I mean, we see her with the projectionist early in the film who she sleeps with, and that's the reason that she survives because they're in this steel line projection booth. Um, and she projects that kind of confidence to him where she's like, yeah, whatever, you know, we can make it or not. It like, I don't even really care. And that makes her 
almost more appealing. So did you I mean, think I so? Because I thought that was like this dude is just like negging her into like, come on, can't we just have sex? And she's like, okay, I guess I don't have any other plans. We can have sex again or something like that. It didn't seem like a confident move, more as like a just like you've worn me down move. Yeah, I mean, I to me, I think it's confidence in the idea that like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't necessarily need to worry about like sex is something that she's confident about. And she can have sex with this guy that she kind of doesn't care that much Very about. Casual. Because she just, yeah, because she just yeah. enjoys having sex and they've done it before and they had a good time. And so that she's going to do it again. And it's all cool. That's cool. So, hey, Dave, yeah. you enjoy having sex? <laughs> yeah, it's good. Good. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's a good, good put, put Dave on the spot there with that. Of all things. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Uh, like I said, Josh, to me, first half really enjoyed second half. Meh. And then the ending with the DMK license plate, like, who cares? Who who cares? I mean, it's just a cute little reference. I don't even know if I noticed that at first, where he's got the the initials of the one guy who beat her in Tempest in the in the arcade. Uh, I don't think yeah. you need you. I don't think you need to make that connection. Like, but let me uh, tell you the falsehood of that whole thing, Josh. Oh yeah, please. He was he placed sixth out of not six out of ten. So then right. when she beats him and gets to fifth. He would not be off the board completely. He would just be moved down to seventh. False premise, dear. Well, I think maybe she gets to sixth and she replaces him. She gets the exact right score to end up in the same no, place. You, but me. that doesn't make sense because he still has a higher score than seven, eight, nine, and ten. So he would just drop one spot. Okay. That's clear math. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she beat him five times. That's we don't possible see that. too. We don't see yeah. that. I don't know. So, okay, I, I will grant you that might be a slight uh, a slight inconsistency there in the film. But I think that ending is, again, you don't have to remember that callback in order to appreciate the ending and, you know, the idea that now uh, Samantha has her own kind of hot guy that she's going to give her attention to and the way that they've decided to sort of rebuild civilization in this very cavalier teen girl way. And I mean, I think it's it's consistent with the whole tone of the movie, which is that all this awful stuff happens, but these are people who are resilient and upbeat because they're young and they're able to roll with the punches on these things and they're just going to go shopping. And so I, I, just, I love that about this. Movie. No, I know you love that. And I, and you, you gravitate towards that type of character and uh, storyline and arc, but I don't think it follows through the whole way. Like the humor is so prevalent in the first half. Like when Doris, the stepmother, just punches Samantha in the face, like almost out of nowhere, like after that chuck line, like it's like, what? Like, I liked how far they were going for it, but I don't think you got that at all when they're in that kind of underground scientific facility. And like I said, like, you know, you're saying the scientists aren't supposed to be that menacing, but they are the bad guys. And I'm like, I didn't feel any danger there. And I'm just like that whole sequence just kind of fell apart for me. Yeah, I mean, they are the bad guys, but I think part of the point is that these characters are equipped to deal with them in part because they are resilient and they don't take things too seriously. And I think there are plenty of moments of humor in there. I mean, when they're interrogating Regina and asking her all these questions and she's not taking it seriously and she's busy trying to take the tags off the clothes that she just got from the mall. And even that moment mentioned in that one review where uh, Samantha shows up to kind of rescue her and Regina's like, oh, you know, all excited because it's like, I thought you were dead. And they, you know, then she has a line about, oh, and what a cute outfit you've got on. Like, I think yeah. that that style of humor continues. 
Uh, like, yes, things are a little more serious there as the stakes get higher, even if you didn't feel them. I mean, certainly there's meant to be a heightened danger at that point in the movie. So there's not quite as much humor. But I think the sense of humor continues throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, talk to me, Josh, about the performance of the lead bad guy in the mall. I mean, he's kind of a, a stereotype of like a an 80s, you know, gang member, whatever. He could have come out of the Warriors or whatever. I mean, he's a little ridiculous. But I think that, again, I think that fits with the tone of the movie, which is which is silly and fun. Um, I mean, there's a great shot at the beginning of that mall sequence where they set down their machine gun right next to all the high-heeled shoes. And I feel like that visual encapsulates what this movie's about. No, no. I like the the girls in that. I'm just saying, you know, you, you know the expression, like, this guy's from a different movie. Like, right. uh, I was like, this guy is from a different movie, but I can't think of any movie that he should be from. Because, I mean, he's just so over the top, like, you know. He's like auditioning for Joker or something like that. And it, uh, to me, it did not it did not uh, uh, work. Yeah. I mean, I think he could have come out of like the Warriors or something like that. You know, we've talked about yeah. uh, Walter Hill yeah. and uh, or, or or like a Mad Max movie or something like that. I mean, he's your standard to me. He's like exactly the kind of character you expect in a post apocalypse. The the guy who takes advantage of his uh, unexpected position of power to abuse people. Yeah, it's just a really fast uh, movement from stock boy to warlord, I guess. And that's what <laughs> happens. I feel like that happens in a lot of post-apocalypse movies where you have these 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 powerful evil presences and they talk about like, well, what did you do before the end of the world? And it's like, oh, I, you know was an accountant or whatever, but they they seize that opportunity. So, I mean, I don't think we need a whole bunch of character development for this guy and how he got from point A to point B. No, um, I just didn't like the performance. Like, forget yeah. the character development. I thought the performance was like, just so, I, I, I dude, community theater, short film of, uh, you know, high school. I don't, I don't even know. It just, it wasn't yeah. very good is what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's I mean, no that's offense because there's been plenty of great community theater and short film in local production performances. So that is true. Dave, why don't um, you I, jump in? Let's have Dave did, jump in here. Yeah. Did you, did you like this Dave? Uh, I, I definitely fall somewhere between the two of you guys. I, I, there's a lot to like about it for a lot of the reasons Josh was talking about it. But then I also think the end just really kind of goes off the rails and not in necessarily a fun way, but in a, what, what the hell's going on at this point kind of way. But I, I enjoyed it, though. I, I enjoyed it for what it was. One thing, though, that you guys haven't uh, touched on that, that I thought we should talk about is the music, yeah. which, uh, you know, aside from the girls just want to have fun montage, which is great. Uh, there's some really strange choices. Otherwise, I mean, there's a lot of this like music that sounds like it would be famous pop songs of the <laughs> 80s, but there are things you've never heard of ever in your life. And then anytime it's just score, the score is just very weird, like very just out there synth 80s score like not particularly good but it like made me chuckle a lot yeah, yeah. i i want to jump in before you do josh um sure i i agree i don't i like all that synth craziness you know and um it's it, it works for me um the girls just want to have fun uh did they they just didn't have the budget for the cindy Lauper version is that correct so <laughs> i i i assume so and 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 at all the music that you're pointing out i mean other than girls just want to have fun the majority of this music was created for the movie. And I think that's yeah. part of the reason that they would have loved to get real pop songs, but instead they get these songs that sound like they're real pop songs, but yeah. were actually created for yeah. the movie. And, 
And they all sound like I've been waiting for a girl like you or something very, <laughs> very 80s um, love song compilation disky. You know, um, I, I like the music as bad as it was. Like, that's one of the elements that's so bad it's good for me. And as opposed to Streets of Fire, which is it's so good, it's good, you know. I mean, the music in Streets of Fire is definitely better. I mean, and, and was created by some... Yeah. huge major songwriters, which is not the case here. But I feel like it sort of fits with the tone of this movie. And I like the idea that you hear those songs and you think like, this must be a well-known song of some kind. And it, it really isn't, <laughs> you know, and it's just a pastiche of different kinds of styles. I mean, mostly that 80s pop, but we get a couple country songs in there later when yeah. Hector is, is posing as a, as a cowboy for inexplicable reasons. Um, so I, I do like that, but I mean, certainly this is this music isn't as good as actual '80s pop hits or as something that like Jim Steinman might write. Um, I'm 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 with you on that, Jason. All right, all right, I like it. Uh, th thank you, thank you. Uh, is was there is there anything else you liked about it, Dave? Uh, I I really love the line "Trace Dimensiones." <laughs> there you go. Yes. Uh, yeah. But no, I, I I really like the girls though. I mean, they're great and. It's just, it's funny, the first half I'm thinking like, you know, these characters are great. I, I just want more to start happening. And then that more starts happening. It's like, okay, pull back a little bit, please. I don't know what's happening anymore. Right. No, there are definitely some super fun lines uh, in the thing. Like, even as a comedian, just stuff that I would like say on stage, I feel like now that I know them. And I don't, wouldn't care that the audience would probably not get it. Like, it's Saturday morning. Where are the goddamn kids? You know, I thought that was a fun line. And uh, also, I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. Those were the two that. Uh, oh, classic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. And I think, Dave, to what you're saying, like, I would have been happy with this movie if it was just the, the sisters hanging out and kind of right. enjoying the apocalypse. I, I like that the part of the movie that, that goes somewhere. And I feel like it has a lot of strong elements and it, it gives you. Uh, an arc for the story so that they can wrap up at the end. But I do love all the just hangout stuff. And and I would have been more than happy to kind of stick with that uh, just as they're exploring that sister dynamic. So um, I still like all of it, but I can see how the second half doesn't work for people, even if you're enjoying the first half. Right. Well, and that's the thing is like, you know, we've talked about this, you know, one way or the other in other movies and I, the first half was so much fun and i thought the look of the first half was even be was better you know once they got to the lab it's just a sterile you know science lab and everything like i like those kind of orange guys that they did in the first half and i i just thought like the pieces didn't connect as much as i wanted them to so hey i i i was shocked that i know you like this type of movie but i gotta say i was shocked that you love it so much. Yeah, I mean, I think, like again, certainly coming into it, I just thought, oh, this is like a weird cult thing that I will check out and kind of, in, you know, hopefully kind of enjoy. But I just think it combines two things that I really like, which I really enjoy, you know, science. I like science fiction movies, I like apocalypse movies, and I love these, these kind of upbeat teen girl comedies. And the way that he integrates those two uh, genres, I think just works really well. And so it, it, it adds up to something you know, it's one thing that I would like and another thing that I would like, and those add up to something that I really, really like. And yeah, I mean, having seen this movie a few times, like I really enjoy watching it every time. So there you that's, go. That's my thought on it. So um, yeah, I just, like uh -huh. I said, from a story standpoint and kind of, it just kind of, you know, just kind of uh, wet noodles. The second half goes limp, buddy. 
needs a right. needs a little blood flowing if you catch yeah. my drift. Hey Josh, uh you know I love the alternate casting and as oh, much yeah. fun as Kelly Maroney is in this uh you know as Samantha how about your girl Heather Langenkamp who auditioned for it? You know, as we know from the Nightmare on Elm Street, she probably would have knocked it out of the park, huh? I, I mean, I think she's great in those Nightmare on Elm Street movies. So sure, I would have been happy to see her. Although I think Kelly Maroney is so good in that role and so fits that role. I think, you know, in the same year in 1984 is when Nightmare on Elm Street came out. And Heather Langenkamp in that movie plays a a, a much more mature in a lot of ways, teenagers, a kind of a world weary character eventually. And she does that really well. So um, I think Kelly Maroney is perfect here. And I watched, I have this on, on Blu-ray and I watched, I was kind of skimming through some of the special features and they have interviews with Kelly Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart from, you know, some recent years, whenever this was put out. And I love that uh, Kelly Maroney's voice sounds exactly the same now when she's in like her fifties or sixties as, as it does in this movie. So yeah. I thought that was great. And like we said, they've both been working actors, you know, as, to this day, but I do appreciate how they, like you said, they just did the zoom. Um, they've embraced this, you know, they're not running from this. And, uh, I like that a lot. Yeah. And I think it's a great thing to embrace. Like I embrace it. It's a, it's a good film and it's nice to see that it gets some level of appreciation from people now, uh, even if Jason, you are not one of them. Did you uh, have anything else you were considering picking for 1984 as your pick? I mean, I probably did. I don't recall. I think A Nightmare on Elm Street probably was one because that is one of my favorite movies of all time and I think is brilliant. But since we'd already talked about A Nightmare on Elm Street movie in our first season when we covered New Nightmare, I figured I'd probably go in a different direction. And that's the only one that comes to mind right now. I think I was eager to to do this one though, because it's not well known. And because I love it so much, I feel like that's a great combination of things to pick. Um, if it's possible to find something there and it's not only a movie that I really like, but is also a movie that doesn't get as much attention. So, I mean, everyone knows Nightmare on Elm Street, but this is not a movie that people know as much. So I'm happy to give it a bit of a push. So no, this nightmare on what, what? No, I'm just kidding, Josh. Because you said everyone knows it. Oh, Jokes yeah. are always the best when you have to explain them. I agree with you. Uh, I'm always happy to get some weird cult movie that I didn't know about. Um, and I wish I, I wish it would have held up for me in the same uh, level of prestige that you have it at. But uh, hey, I'll always have Streets of Fire. You will. You will indeed. So do we want to rate this out of five uh, dust piles that used to be human beings? <laughs> Sure. That's good. It um it gets two and a half for me, Josh, mostly for the first half. I love the kind of Valley Girl uh element. Uh, Valley Girl's a great movie, by the way. Um, and as we mentioned, it has a couple of the producers from there um and the writers. Um Val I, I love the Valley Girl in the apocalypse element, and I would have just been happy with that. I understand we have to ratchet up the stakes, but I don't think it was as effective. Uh so mostly for the first half, uh two and a half dust piles for this guy that used to be humans. Yeah. And th I think those are fair, uh, fair criticisms. I, again, I love it. I'm giving it four out of five. I, I just think it's great. And I enjoyed watching it again, uh, before this time, Dave, uh, what would you rate this one? I'm giving it a three guys. All right. Well, I'll take that. So there you uh, go. That's, that's good. It's no, it's no, the frighteners obviously. Right. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Night of the Comet. 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about my personal pick, which is Tom Eberhardt's cult film, Night of the Comet, which I seem to be alone in loving, at least on this podcast. But uh, it does have a legacy as a cult favorite. Uh, as I said, there was a recent uh, online reunion with Kelly Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart, the stars of this film. Certainly, people continue to enjoy it. I mean, like I said, I have a like a collector's edition Blu-ray of it with all these special features on it that obviously was put together because there's some audience for that. So that's nice to see. As far as the the creators of this film, as as kind of alluded to earlier, uh, Tom Eberhardt, the writer director, did not go on to have a, a major or artistically rich career per se. Uh, I mean, I think seeing this movie, I would have been excited like, oh, wow, this is he's such a great filmmaker. I'd love to see more. And other than that movie, Soul Survivor, that we mentioned that he did just before this, that has kind of a cult following other stuff he's worked on as a writer uh, or a director. He's done both where he's just been a writer or just been a director. A lot of mainstream dumb comedy stuff like Captain Ron and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid and a, a Christmas movie called All I Want for Christmas with Thora Birch, which I've actually seen that and is is kind of not bad for a silly family Christmas movie. But I don't think any of those are movies that people think of as great. Nope. <laughs> have you have you seen have you seen Captain Ron, Jason? No, I've seen Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. But he's one of like five writers on it. So, you know. right. Yeah. Who knows if there's any kind of his voice in there? So I think it's 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 kind of a bummer. And that happens sometimes you see a movie. And it's like, wow, what a great movie. I wonder what else this filmmaker made. And you realize that it's nothing else of note. There's no, there's no further discovery for you to make after that point. And Josh, before we get to the, uh, the actors and what they've done, uh, you must be excited that there is a remake uh, that's being talked about uh, that supposedly Roxanne Benjamin, the writer-director of Body at Brighton Rock, has already turned in a draft for. I know nothing about Roxanne Benjamin, and uh, I, I'm surprised that they didn't get like a bigger writer because of this cult following for this thing. Well, I think the cult following is still small in that this is not like such a well-known property that it's going to attract top-tier major talent. Um, I have not seen Body at Brighton Rock. I've seen a couple of Roxanne Benjamin's uh, segments that she's made in horror anthology films in uh, Southbound and Double uh, X. And I think she's promising as a filmmaker. Uh, she's definitely more of a horror person than a comedy person or a sci-fi person. So we'll see. I mean, and like all of these things, I feel like we've done so many episodes uh, where we say, oh, there's a remake or a sequel in the works for this movie, and then it just never happens. Yeah. So we'll, well see if that, that actually That could comes also be because we're we're living through the apocalypse as we speak. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of these get put on hold right now. So Well, that's um, true. But even before that, I feel like we've talked about these these prospects that don't work out. But I, I hope if there's a remake that it does justice to this original. And I hope that it's good. But even more than that, I hope that it would bring an audience. Uh, to this film. So we'll see how that goes. Now, you mentioned Robert Beltran, most famous for Star Star Trek Voyager, also uh, Big Love, and he played Raul in Eating Raul. So that's exciting. Do you have a favorite Kelly Maroney film? <laughs> I, I, I believe it's Night of the Comet. Oh, are you sure it's not Scream Queen Hot Tub Party? <laughs> I mean, that sounds brilliant, but no. Um, yeah, I mean, as we alluded to, Kelly Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart 
have worked steadily, but mostly in movies like that, in B movies and on soap operas and stuff. They definitely didn't go on to to major careers. Well, um, Kelly Maroney was in Chopping Mall, so she's got two of these kind of cult classics in there, you know. She does, and I, I've seen Chopping Mall, which is actually pretty fun. And I'm sure between Chopping Mall and this, um, they they probably both do quite well on the convention circuit, um, which is of course another thing that's on hold at the moment, but. Those genre conventions always love getting stars of these kind of cult movies to show up and, and do panels and signings and stuff. So I, I bet they do a lot of those. She was in Hard to Die and her, she's, her character is credited with the name Porno Wife. What do you think that means? <laughs> I don't know, but I look forward to finding <laughs> out. It's just a weird, it's not like white, you know, pornographer's wife or porn star's wife, just porno wife. Like, is she a wife that does porn or... Uh, I mean, I mean, there's definitely markets for all these things. I'm just, it's a weird credit is what I'm saying. It is. We'll have to watch that movie and, and find out exactly what that means. Catherine Mary Stewart, 1984, Last Starfighter. Come on, pretty good year. Yeah, that was, I mean, this is a thing where they were probably, you know, they were in some demand at this point, but it just didn't really, it didn't really build for them. Mary Warnov, however, is, I mean, she's an icon of cult cinema. She started working in the 1960s. She was one of Andy Warhol's regulars in his like art films that he made. And then she moved on to working with Roger Corman and Joe Dante. She's great as the evil principal in Rock and Roll High School, which is another amazing uh, kind of cult low budget movie about teen girl friendship that I love. Um, and she's still around, although I think she hasn't acted in a few years, but she is like, she is the biggest deal in this movie, I would say. All right, that's fair. I think you also should mention that Catherine Mary Stewart was in Weekend at Bernie's, but you know, whatever. Did she play Bernie? <laughs> no, 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 she, she did didn't. not. So right. you make a fair point. No. And the one other legacy here is that supposedly this uh, had some influence on Joss Whedon creating Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I don't know how true that is, but I could see him, the idea here of the like bubbly blonde cheerleader character who's also tough. And I like that. That's one thing we didn't mention earlier, but I love that they're so comfortable with firearms because they have their, mm -hmm. their father who is some sort of soldier I of believe, fortune or something. Yeah. Like, like a mercenary. Or something. <laughs> yeah. I love the references to the father and how those build a picture over time of like, who is he? Is their father like Arnold Schwarzenegger from Predator or something like that? Um, but, you know, he's taught them to use machine guns and stuff and they're very comfortable with it. And yet it doesn't make them any less girly. And yeah. I love that. And I can see how that has an influence on Buffy. No, that's fun. Um, I also got a lot of like, because I watched too many seasons of The Walking Dead, like a lot of the kind of zombie scares and, um, you know, kind of murders, definitely Walking Dead uh, tinged, you know, I'm saying uh, I'm saying that the showrunners are probably fond of Night of the Comet as well. Yeah, I could believe that. I think, uh, you know, Robert Kirkman, who's the the creator of the Walking Dead comic and and works on the show, is definitely like a cult movie uh, genre kind of guy. You know, he's worked extensively in weird comic books, and I could definitely see him being a fan of this one. So, uh, yeah, is anything else you want to mention on the legacy here, Jason? Uh, I uh, It was ranked number 10 in Bloody Disgusting's top 10 doomsday horror films, Josh. So All right. you got that going for you. I do. Yeah, that's a, I'm great. Happy to see it on uh, on any list like that. So I think this might be the is this the second reference to Bloody Disgusting that we've had this season? Did, it, did we? Uh, uh, no, not we might this have quoted season. them in our 
trick or treat episode. Yeah, in the bonus in a, episode. In, yes, not this season, but in our Halloween bonus episode. But recently, yeah, shout out to Bloody Disgusting. So, um, <laughs> so that is Night of the Comet, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can, Josh. I am at Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Uh, my website, goforjason.com, more akin to the second half of Night of the Comet than the first. Uh, we are at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at signalbleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where I'm really curious if any of those weirdos love this movie <laughs> as much as Josh does. Uh, it seems like it seems like they Yeah, would. and if they do, what else they would recommend in this, in this genre? Josh, do you have any others that you'd want to throw out there? In the, the post-apocalyptic teen comedy genre? Yeah. I don't know. I think part of what I love about this movie is that it's it's kind of unique in that regard. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd have to I'd have to kind of give that an extra thought. I think you could see if the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie has has some elements of this, although it's really not that good. And Christy Christy Swanson is no uh, Catherine Mary Stewart. I would say is she a Kelly Maroney? <laughs> no, not that either. Honestly. <laughs> so, Jason, what do we have coming up in our next episode? Well, Josh, you and I are nothing if if not spreaders of holiday cheer. That's what we're known as, the spreaders of holiday cheer. So we have a Christmas episode for you, and it just so happens it's from 1984, and it's one of the biggest movies of the year, Gremlins! Everybody loves Gremlins around Christmas time. So have a Merry Christmas, and tune in next time for Gremlins. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.